Okay, Isaiah 44. And uh, we're going to be looking at the entire chapter over the next two weeks. I think it will take us two weeks to get through this. But we're going to begin with verses 1 through 3. Stand for the reading of God's Word. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll begin in verse number 1 here. The Bible says, Yet now hear, O Jacob, my servant in Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus saith the Lord that made thee, and formed thee from the womb, which will help thee. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and thou, Jesurin, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty, and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed, and my blessing upon thine offering. A little bit further down, he's going to talk about idolatry. In fact, I wasn't going to do this in the opening. Let's just go ahead, if you would, skip down to verse number, let's see here, verse number 12. The smith with the tongs both worketh in the coals, and fashioneth with hammers, and worketh it with the strength of his arms. Yea, he is hungry, and his strength faileth. He drinketh no water, and is faint. The carpenter stretcheth out his rule. He marketh it out with a line. He fitteth it with planes, and he marketh, uh, marketh it out with marketh it out uh, with the compass, and maketh it as the figures of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house. He's talking about uh, shaping an idol here, um, and the uh, process of it. Look down with me at verse 17, verse 17, speaking of the leftover of a wooden tree, and the residue thereof he maketh a god, even his graven image. He falleth down untoeth it, and worshipeth it, and prayeth unto it, and saith, Deliver me, for thou art my God. And uh, he's saying here, he's saying, listen, you people are so nonsensical, they're taking the leftovers of what they used to cook with, and they're worshiping it. They're worshiping a false idol. And this wasn't just the pagan Gentiles. The Jews during Isaiah's day had fallen into that trap. We're going to look at this title tonight, The Ignorance of Idolatry. When I was a teenager, uh, an insult would be to look at someone and say, you're ignorant. You're ignorant. How many are old enough to remember? That kids, I don't think, they, they have other ways of saying that same thing now. But you're ignorant. And uh, what does it mean to be ignorant? It means that you just don't know. You're, you're behaving in a way where you don't have all the facts. You're ignorant or lacking of all the facts. And to worship an idol to worship anything other than God comes from a place of pure ignorance, the ignorance of idolatry. Let's pray tonight. God, would you guide my mouth as I uh, teach and explain and articulate and parse the Scriptures. Thank you for what you have showed me uh, in the study and how you've walked me uh, through this passage. Help me, Lord, to be able to share with the things that you've laid on my heart. Lord, each one tonight needs something just a little bit different, and I can't possibly reach in and make the applications, but Spirit of God, you can. And so I pray that as I convey uh, the, the truths from the passage, Lord, that you would uh, apply them to hearts, Lord, and help us to leave here with our spiritual batteries charged. May uh, we have walked in the door spiritually hungry and leave here fed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So God was in a, in a battle for the affection of the people of Israel, for the Israelites. And he's in a battle, right? He has, uh, he has the Israelites whom he loves, going all the way back to Abraham. Remember, he chose Abraham, and then Jacob, and then, um, uh, rather, Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob. Jacob's name got changed to Israel. Israel gave birth to 12 sons, and 
more or less, those became the 12 tribes of Israel. And God sort of handholds, caters, loves, looks after, protects, guards, delivers from bondage in Egypt, and then uh, walks them through the wilderness and deals with their unbelief and uh, doesn't destroy them, but rather allows the old uh, cranky ones to die off and the, uh, the uh, young ones to grow up, marches them into the promised land, gives them the promised land, helps them to get settled, uh, uh, deals with them through a series of judges who were uh, in a time of people where they're unruly, and then in comes Saul, and then comes King David, and uh, we get to Isaiah 44, and we're several kings deep now, and we're getting ready for them to be carried away into bondage. All through this process, God has been in a battle to maintain the affection of the Jews and to maintain uh, their love for Him. Now, we looked at last week out of chapter 43 how that God is faithful. In fact, He never wavers. He He loves He loved the Israelites the same. Uh, he didn't take a day off uh, week after week, month after month, year after year, even, uh, even century after century. He was there every moment to love them, but Israel seemed to just continue to be up and down and up and down and checked in and checked out and checked in and usually God would have to correct them and then they would repent and then they'd go right back to have revival then right back to uh, sin and 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 so you have this where God is trying to uh, earn the affection he's battling uh, for the affection of his people the Israelites and uh, they were called they were a people called out uh, uh, they were, let's see, they were a called out people in a culture of sin and idolatry. Now, can we relate tonight to being a called out people in a culture of sin and idolatry? We have sin everywhere, right? And uh, as we'll see tonight, idolatry in our culture is everywhere. Yes, uh, I mean idolatry like bowing down to a statue, but I'm not even talking about bowing down to a statue. I'm talking about the idolatry of worshiping work or worshiping money or worshiping things. Idolatry is everywhere. In fact, the Western culture has a materialism problem. We have a materialism problem where we are way, way, way too materialistic and we have a, we have a culture of sin and idolatry all around us. We have been called out. Now, the Israelites continued to fall into the trap of idolatry. Scripture expresses all of the emotions that you would expect God to feel over Israel's unfaithfulness. How would you feel if you found out that your husband or wife was in bed with someone other than you? How would you feel? How hurt would you be? Well, that's what God felt toward Israel every time they, if you will, climbed in bed with the idols, right? And so what emotions would you feel? You'd feel... You, would you expect God to feel jealousy, right? The Bible says that the Lord our God is a jealous God, a jealous God. Uh, here's one, anger, right? The wrath of God became very hot against the Israelites for their sin. You may remember we looked at a couple of weeks ago where uh, God said to Moses, um, let me kill them and start over with you. And Moses said, Lord, you can't do that. And um, he talked them off the cliff. The anger. What other emotions would you expect someone to feel that had been cheated on? How about sorrow? Sorrow. Very sad. Jesus was sorrowful over the spiritual adultery and falling back into idolatry. God would speak here in Isaiah 44 
God would speak through his prophet the same rationale that you would use if a spouse was unfaithful to you. Uh, he, he, he says to them, if you will, what do they have to offer that I don't? What do the idols have to offer that as your God I don't have to offer? So what's he doing here? He's discrediting their love interest. He's saying, all right, you're over there so enamored with those idols, and I'm over here. I'm the omnipotent, omniscient, uh, omnibenevolent God of the universe who daily pours out my love on you. Over there, you got a statue of gold or a statue of wood. What do they have to offer that I don't? Um, he says to them, I have been faithful to you. Why can't you be faithful to me? Right? There's fidelity on my end, but not on yours. Why? He, he's saying to them, he's saying, through his prophet in Isaiah 44, he's saying, I am better to you than the idols in every single way. And then he says this to them. He says, I will receive you back and restore you if you can turn from your unfaithful behavior. Now, um, I hope tonight you're beginning to see the landscape of the passage and where we're going because you say, well, I'm not an Israelite and I don't live in Isaiah's day. Listen, uh, we battle the same stuff Israel does. We get distracted, do we not? Our, our walk with God isn't always what it ought to be. Our affection toward God isn't always what it ought to be. Listen, you can go to church three times a week and you can read your Bible and pray. And you can go soul winning. You can do all those things and your heart can still be far from the Lord because you are distracted by other things that are not on the level that God is. While God did not choose your ancestor Abraham uh, like he did theirs, he still chose you. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him, whosoever, that's you, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And while you may not, uh, while you may not be a child of Israel, if you are saved, then you are a child of God. Alright? He's chosen you just like he chose the Israelites. And so while this is an Israeli passage, an application can be made to each and every one of us. So Christian, God loves you with the same jealous love and he demands your affection and your attention the way he demanded the affection and attention of the Israelites. Are Christians today guilty of idolatry? Turn over to Colossians 3. Colossians 3. I believe the answer is, yes, we are. We are guilty of idolatry. Colossians 3, look at verse 1. I'm going to have some of the men in the room help me with the passages this evening. Colossians 3, verse 1 through 6. i got several. Every man in here should get a turn before we get out of here tonight. Kyle, can you read those verses for us? Do you have them there? Colossians 3, 1 through 6.
So verse 5 tells us that covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. Why would covetousness be idolatry? Well, first let's start out by talking about what covetousness is. It's wanting something that you shouldn't want or that you're not allowed to have. Right? The tenth commandment in Exodus 20 is thou shalt not covet. Now that's how we know it. But after thou shalt not covet is a long list of things that we're not supposed to covet. Right? Thy neighbor's house, thy neighbor's wife, thy neighbor's donkey, thy neighbor's... That's the PG English version, right? Thy neighbor's house. I mean, on down the list, thy neighbor's manservants and maidservants. And you're not supposed to want your neighbor's wealth. You're not supposed to want his wife. You're not supposed to want um, anything that belongs to him. Why? Because that's idolatry. I'm going to step out on a branch and say this. I think the commandment of the Ten Commandments, the commandment that is violated the most by American Christians is the Tenth Commandment. I think we do a lot of coveting, and we don't even know it. You ever sit and just peruse through eBay or Amazon and look at things that you're not going to buy, that you probably can't afford? You ever seen a car at a stop sign or a traffic light and said, Oh, I'd love to have that. It's covetousness, right? You can't afford that car. So why even look at it? You ever seen someone else's spouse and wish that your spouse treated you the way theirs does? Have you ever looked at something that you weren't supposed to have? I've done these things. Covetousness. This is idolatry. This is idolatry. Because we're taking something that God does not want us to have, at least at that time, and we're putting it up above God and saying, I want that even though right now I'm not supposed to have it. Not supposed to have it. Remember when Angela and I, before we owned a home, there was a time where we were both very disgruntled with our living situation. Very disgruntled. And uh, we would go back and forth complaining about it. And we'd look at other people who lived in nice houses and say, boy, we've been married long enough, it sure would be nice to be able to own a house like that. Remember one time I was inspecting a home, I had a job inspecting homes for the bank, There was a home in Hagerstown I loved. I inspected this house every month. Most of the houses I went in were either trashed or, you know, torn apart or beaten down. This house was like turnkey ready. Beautiful home. And because it was a foreclosure, it would have been in our price range had we just been making a little bit more money. And I put Angela in the car, and we drove over there, and we sat in the parking lot in our driveway, and I said, boy, I would love to buy this house. You know what I was doing? I was coveting over something I couldn't afford. And I remember God began to work on my heart over that. And I said to my wife, I said, God is not going to give us a home until we become content with where we live and what we have. Wanting nice things is not a sin. That's not a sin. But trusting God's timing is the key. Lord, I would love to have that down the road, but right now I'm content to have what you've given me. I'm content to have what you've given me. Lord, I would love the single people. I would love to be married, but right now I'm content with being single When it's your time, I'll trust you'll bring the right person into my life. Lord, I would love to have this amount of money in the bank, but right now, Lord, uh, I don't have that, and so I'm going to trust your timing that you'll provide that when it's your timing. Covetousness is 
idolatry. And what were the Israelites doing? Let me tie it back into the Israelites here. They were looking at what the, what the, um, uh, uh, what the pagan Gentiles, how they worshipped. They were saying, boy, I wish we could worship the way they do. Uh, they, vis- they worship a visible God. We have to uh, worship an invisible God. You know what? I think I'm going to go over here and get me a visible God, and I'm going to bow down to it because that looks fun. And you know what? Praying to a God I can't see or hear or touch, uh, that's not fun. And so I'm going to do it their way. And you know what? Really what happens is with idolatry is we cave to social norms. That's what it is. So I want us to look at three main thoughts out of the book of Isaiah, chapter 44, as we talk about ignorance from idolatry. God in this chapter is making his case as to why you need to stop worshiping the idols and you need to start worshiping me. Number one, God's provision. Let's look at the first eight verses here. I'm going to give you an A, B, and a C. The Lord's making his case as to why he is good, why he is um, worthy of, of fidelity and faithfulness. All right? Letter A, notice his goodness. His goodness. Look at verse number one there. Yet now hear, O Jacob, my servant in Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus saith the Lord that made thee and formed thee from the womb, which will help thee. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and thou Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty, floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed, and my blessing upon thine offspring. That word Jeshurun, I believe it's the only time in the Bible that it's found. I did some looking in, digging into that word. And the best I can come, can come up with is that it was a term of endearment that meant upright or perfect. God is saying to Israel, almost like uh, a, uh, a, a parent would pour a, a compliment on a child, hey, good looking, uh, come over here handsome, come over here beautiful. Uh, uh, maybe I would say to my wife, hello, sweetheart, how are you? I don't talk to her that way because all of our terms of endearment are in Spanish, okay? Come here, cariño, right? Or come, come here, um, uh, mi linda. And so uh, you would use a term of endearment. And so this was a term of endearment, jesurin. What is God saying here? He's saying to them, listen, I will be your provider. I will take care of you. Whenever you have a need, you're hungry, I'm going to feed you. You're thirsty like a dry ground, a parched ground. I'm going to pour water on you. I'm going to pour, verse 3, I'm going to pour my blessing upon thine offspring. You know what I want? I want Matthew and April to be blessed. I want them to grow up and have the blessings of God poured down upon them every day of their life. That's what I want. I don't want the blessings of God to shrivel up on my kids. I want God's blessing to pour upon them. And God says to him, uh, to Israel here, he says, listen, I'm making a case for why you should worship me. I provide for you out of my goodness. Now, Christian, let me ask you a question. Do you complain when you have a need? Or do you see it as an opportunity for God to do something good? All right? So, you know what the Israelites did um, in the wilderness when they got thirsty? The Bible says they what? They murmured. You know what that means? We don't have anything to drink. Moses, you need to do something about it. We're going to die in this wilderness. Moses got frustrated with him. and He'd strike a rock and water would come or he'd throw a... Right, uh, throw a, a, a tree in a in in, in the uh, river there at Mara and God or the brook Mara, and that would be turned sweet. And then he'd strike the flint rock, and everywhere they went, they just complained. Right? Um, do you see your need 
as an opportunity for God to supply or do you see your need as an opportunity for you to complain? Right? My foot hurts. My toe hurts. My head hurts. Oh, my head hurts. Oh, I just feel run down. Oh, uh, my wife wasn't nice to me. Oh, listen, you have a need. This is an opportunity for God to step in. You need to change your perspective here, right? uh, Philippians 4.19 says this, But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. I, I really believe this. I probably said this recently in the sermon, but boy, it sure needs to be. I could say this over and over and over again. We need to hear it. American Christians, they don't have needs. Because when they have one for a slight second, we got two-day delivery with Amazon. we got a grocery store right down the street. And if we don't have any cash in the bank, we've got a credit card that will cover it. Who needs God when you have Visa and MasterCard? Right? I'll just declare bankruptcy when I, you know, run out of credit and start all over again. Uh, who needs God when I have a need? Who needs prayer uh, when I could run and call the pastor and he'll open up the benevolence fund and pay my bill? You see, we have a need so that God can step in and fill it and supply the need. And when we worship God, we trust in His goodness. I want to just say this before we move on to letter B. God, watch this, is goodwill toward you. You ever had someone question your goodwill? Right? If you're married, you've had someone question your goodwill. Okay? Why do you talk to me that way? Hey, hold on. Whoa, time out, time out, pause. Hang on. Husband loves wife. Wife respects husband. But yet, we immediately take the other one's goodwill and we throw it out the window when we're upset. You know what we do and we're not getting our way with God? We question His goodwill. And I'm here to tell you today, God is goodwill toward you. Don't question that. Lean on it and trust Him. You remember the passage where Jesus said, um, how many of you, if your child asks for bread, will you give him a stone, right? How much, uh, if ye being evil, know how to good give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give unto them that ask Him? God is good-willed toward you. He's just waiting for you to ask. Letter A is goodness. Letter B, notice our growth. Our growth. So as we lean on the provisions of God, we get to experience His goodness. Then we get to grow. Look at verse 4 and 5. And they shall spring up as among the grass, as willows by the water courses. One shall say, I am the Lord's, and another shall call himself by the name of Jacob's. And another shall subscribe with his hands unto the Lord and surname himself by the name of Israel. So he's saying that uh, to be Jewish will make you so wealthy and you'll prosper so well because as a Jew you're leaning on the Lord that it's going to be trendy to be Jewish. In fact, non-Jews are going to call themselves by Jewish names. You know who I thought of when I, when I read this? I thought of Whoopi Goldberg. Whoopi Goldberg, whose name is not Whoopi Goldberg. Whoopi Goldberg has adopted the last name Goldberg, which is a Jewish name, and she's not Jewish, okay? How many of you did not know that was not her real name? That is not her real name. That is a screen name, all right? Read that a long time ago. And uh, she thinks that somehow she gets a right, has a right to take a shot at, at, at the Jews because she is, she is a Jewish 
made-up last name. No, she's not Jewish, okay? Um, but uh, Whoopi Goldberg, why is she trying to associate with Jews? She says uh, in an interview that I, I think, I believe I read it, she talked about how that her, her name that she was given at birth was not going to land her on the big screen and take her very far in life, so she picked a name that would take her further in life, and boy, did she pick a good one because it has done her well. Um, but uh, Jewish people are some of the most financially prosperous folks throughout the history of mankind. Now, to be fair, not all Jewish people in the U.S., for example, are rich. Now, let me back up. All right, hold on. Let me, let me uh, back, take a step back and tell you where I'm going with this. The Jews, the Jews were God's chosen people, and God has blessed His people in an immense way. Why? Because when you put God on the throne and you worship Him the way you should and God turns around and is favorable toward you, what you're going to find is God's blessing poured out generation after generation after generation. By the way, the list I'm about to give you in just a moment here, this isn't about these people being righteous, because some of the names I'm going to read off are people who are not righteous. But you know what they are? They're part of God's chosen people, and God is faithful to His people. Now, you're not Jewish. I don't know that anyone in here is Jewish, although there might be some folks in here that are partially Jewish. Well, none of us are full-blooded Jew in here this evening that I know of. I know this. If you're a child of God, God wants to pour the same blessing on you when you worship Him. Now, not all Jewish people in the U.S., for example, are rich. In fact, from the stats I found, 10% of U.S. Jews live on $30,000 a year or less. So 10% of all Jews live on $30,000 or less. 17.7% of Israeli Jews live below their nation's poverty line. So not all Jews are wealthy. However, Jewish people are disproportionately successful in our world. Now, listen to this. Jewish people make up 0.2% of the world's population, but 50% of the world's chess champions. Isn't that interesting? 54% of the world's chess champions are Jewish, while only 0.2% of the world's population. 27% of the Nobel Physics, I believe I'm saying this right, laureates, and 31%, I get that right, Tom? 31% of the medicine laureates are Jewish. 0.2% of the world's population, yet 27% Nobel Nobel Physics laureates, 31% medical um, uh, laureates. Now, they make up 2% of the U.S. population, but they make up 21% of the Ivy League student bodies in U.S. schools. 2% of the population, 21% of our Ivy League, uh, of our Ivy League student bodies. 38% of those on a recent Business Week list of leading philanthropists. Now, this list is the latest I could find, but in 2018, five of the top ten wealthiest Americans were Jews. Mark Zuckerberg, Larry Ellison, Larry Page, uh, Sergey Brin, and Michael Bloomberg, five of the ten wealthiest Americans, all Jewish. Now, I am not saying that those guys are moral people. In fact, most of them are not moral people, all right? But corporately, institutionally, as a people group, the Jews have had God's hand of blessing on them, and the result can be seen. Now, look back at verse 4 and Think what I just said, what I just explained, and think about God's promise to them way back 
thousands of years ago in Isaiah 44. And they, the Jewish people, shall spring up as among the grass, as willows by the watercourse. One shall say, I am the Lord's, and another shall call himself by the name of Jacob. And another shall subscribe with his hand unto the Lord, and surname himself by the name of Israel. So God has corporately blessed these people because corporately they have, at least throughout their history, uh, generically put God first, whereas other people groups have not put God first. Now, because America put God first for so many years, we have enjoyed the harvest of a prosperous country. It is really hard to look at America today and see why God would bless this country. I mean, it really is. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just turn on your TV and let the commercials play. Watch any primetime TV. All right, the Hallmark Channel is now promoting the LGBT agenda through their their shows and it's really hard to look around today and see why God would bless this country with just the amount of sin that we have allowed to identify ourselves. But do you know that in America's 240 plus years of existence, for the large majority of those years, we have promoted God through a Judeo-Christian ethos. And because we planted the seeds of doing right and putting God first, again, corporately, corporately, God has blessed us. And and listen, I believe that there are two reasons why God continues to bless America on some level today. Number one is because we lead the world in the amount of missions dollars we send across the seas. I think God blesses that. And two, because we are Israel's friend. Now, this is my opinion, but I believe that any blessings that we're still receiving as a country monetarily is because uh, God is blessing us for those two reasons. Now, stop and think about the principle of God's goodness and uh, a growth based on Matthew 6.33. What's Matthew 6.33 say? But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. In fact, let's see here. Uh, John, could you turn over to Luke 6.38 for me? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Listen And all these things shall be added unto you. I want to just address this quickly. There is this uh, belief in independent Baptist circles that to be right with God means that you're broke. That you don't have any money. And I want to say that that's not what the Bible teaches. Now the Bible does teach that we should be willing to live a minimalist lifestyle. But there are verses in the Bible that teach that God will bless those who do right. Matthew 6.33 is one such verse. All these things shall be added. That's the idea of financial, spiritual growth. Now, how about a faithful man will abound with many blessings. Abound with many blessings. God's going to pour down blessings on you. God's. I'm not preaching a prosperity gospel here. What I am saying is that long term, when you put God's first, He's going to pour down His blessings on you. Why has America been successful for so long? Because America, for many years, put God first. Now God, America, has just about kicked God out of the culture. I'm telling you, that harvest, when it comes in, it's not going to be pretty. Luke 6, 38. Brother John? So what's it saying here? This is another idea of of God prospering those who are faithful. You give, 
and it's given back to you. In fact, you give a little, and God's going to press it down. He's going to shake it together. He's going to come running over all over you. You live a life of being stingy and holding on to yours. Then, uh, you know, I, I told my life group Sunday, I said, if you want to take all of that you have and, and white-knuckle your fist, guess what? It, it's, no one's going to take it from you. It's going to stay in your hand. But you know what? Nothing else can get in your hand because your hand's closed. When you live life with an open hand, you, it may go easy, but God can put a whole lot more there to replace it. And you give, and it's given back to you. Press down, shaking the other, running over, men giving your bosom. And so um, I was reading a, an article recently about why Jewish people are so successful and just their culture and how they live. And one of the principles that Jews are supposed to live by is that they are benevolent and that they give and look out for other people. And again, I'm not saying all Jews do this, but as a culture, that's what they try to do. And you know what? God blesses them in return. So uh, we learn the principle of you put God first and you're going to grow. Letter A, we see his goodness. Letter B, our growth. Letter C, notice his glory. His glory. Look at verse number 6. Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and, the, and his Redeemer... Uh, of the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. And besides me there is no God. The Lord sort of uh, tooting his own horn here. The prophet's tooting God's horn. Verse 7. And who as I shall call and shall declare it and set it in order for me since I appointed the ancient people and things that are coming and shall come, let them show unto me. Fear ye not, neither be afraid. Have not I told thee from that time? And have declared it, ye are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Notice the capital G. Yea, there is no God. I know not any. So in verse 6, he says, I am Israel's ruler. Look back at verse 6. You see there it says, the Lord, the King of Israel. A little further down, the Lord of hosts, plural. The Lord, the King of Israel. The Lord of hosts. Look down at verse 7. He says, and who as I shall call and shall declare it and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people. He said, I'm the one that set up the ancient people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the things that are coming. Not only did I give you your past, not only am I providing for your future, he says, I will rule you, uh, uh, not only am I uh, uh, rather providing for your present, I am also going to rule you in the future. He also says in verse 6, he says, not only am I Israel's ruler, I'm Israel's redeemer. Look back at verse 6. He says, the Lord, the King of hosts, and his Redeemer, the Redeemer of the Lord of hosts. Aren't you glad for God's redemption? But not only is he our ruler and our Redeemer, notice the Bible says there in verse 8, or rather verse 6, that he is eternal. He is eternal. Look at verse 6. He says, I am the first and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. Listen, you can't get away from worshiping uh, this God. He demands your worship. He demands your attention because he is first and he is last. Look with me at, um, let's see here. Uh, not only is he Israel's ruler and Israel's redeemer, not only is he eternal, but he says that he is Israel's encourager. Look down at uh, verse number 8. Fear ye not. Aren't you glad you have a God that can console you when you're afraid? Neither be afraid, if not I told thee from, what that, from that time. And have declared it. Ye are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? That's a rhetorical question. 
Yea, there is no God, I know not any. God says, I, there, is no, there is no God like me. They're little g-gods, but there is no God. I'm reminded of Exodus 20, verse 3. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. I, I, we're going to look at, um, I'm going to give you Roman numeral number 2 right now. And we'll give, give you the subpoints next week. But uh, Roman numeral number two is idolatrous pride. Idolatrous pride. It is pride that causes us to worship anything, uh, anything but God. It is our own desire, really. You know what it is? I, I'm gonna, I'm just, we'll rehash this next week. You know what idolatry is? It's me worshiping me. When I'm bowing down to an idol, or I'm bowing down to a car, I'm bowing down to a paycheck, I'm bow, whatever... It's me worshiping what I want. It comes down to pride. We're going to look at that next week. Let's worship God because he's worthy of our worship. Amen? All right. Let's, uh, let's uh, stand and we'll be dismissed with prayer. Some of you are very tired tonight. You hung in there. Uh, you may have dozed off a little bit, but you hung in there. I'm thankful. I did my best to keep your attention, but I'm glad that you're here this evening, and I hope the Bible study was an encouragement to you and, and it helped you.